everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages to talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your tour guides today are John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 196, interview with Angie Alita Newell. Welcome, Angie. Hello, thank you for having me. I am so delighted that uh, your your team reached out to us. First of all, you made wrote about an interesting book, and we have not introduced or talked to anybody of Native American bloodline or on Native American topics. So first of all, I had to lurk up so many interesting things like, did I pronounce Lidley Q First Nations correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were discussing that earlier. Why so many eyes? <laughs> It's fascinating, but it was, so you're a Canadian Native American, so yeah, I so presume that the Canadian-American border falls right in the middle of somebody's land, right? Well, yeah, so I'm from the Northwest Territory, so that's the, that's like the far, far north, so that's the sub-Arctic tundra, and we're directly related to the Navajo, and we share the same linguistic group, the Dene, and back in 2006, they actually worked on like the public education system between our nation and the Navajo nation. They totally like revamped it so that it was, you know, it aligned with like Dene stories and Dene language. So it's um it's pretty interesting. And I had the opportunity to go down to the Navajo area last year and it was spectacular. Yeah, that is so cool. I mean, there, there are people... And I, fortunately, many of them in northern countries who may not realize America has been populated for the past 5,000, 8,000 years, long before the Vikings showed up, before the British showed up, before everybody showed up. And there's a lot of really fascinating lands, who owns what, territorial areas, linguistic differences. The Navajo speakers, at least, are starting to get a little bit the, the, the I'm going to say it wrong, the trade talkers the wind talkers was it the wind talkers oh yeah world war ii yeah i mean yeah so so that's that's the same language that we have so it's um it's it's all dene and i'm from the south slavey there's like seven different groups up in the northwest territories and what's interesting about where i'm from we're the only indigenous people to north america that weren't forcibly relocated so that's, oh. you know, kind of like the central theme of my novel is, you know, the big, the big point of contention is that, you know, they made all these treaties with these groups and they broke them all. Well, they would have broken them with you, but you're in the Northwest Territory. It, it's hard to get there to break the treaty. <laughs> it's true. It's just too cold. They just like, you're, they're like, you know what, you can just have it. <laughs> And you brought up your book that you're, we're going to talk about a lot today is called All I See is Violence. And there were things that I never quite realized about my own history. I had the very good luck to have an eighth grade teacher somewhere. There's Mr. Keeley, who was also the basketball coach, who gave my version of American history, started with kind of the Trail of Tears, um, Bighorn, we got the Sand Creek Massacre, uh, Wounded Knee and ending with Japanese internment camps. So my whole eighth grade year was dedicated to shameful America. And that's and yet, a big year. <laughs> it, was, it was a big, heavy year, but it was awesome because when I got off to high school, I lived in a different area in Colorado. And my history teacher up there 
we'll just say had a different slanted view of manifest destiny. And I love <laughs> that you brought about that in your book. Because, I mean, this was a high school whose, I'm just saying our alma mater went to the tune of Deutschland über alles. But <laughs> it, it just, that opening of even across America, there are so many different areas where teachers in social studies and history, some of them actually do care enough to learn this stuff. So I was, and, and I love your book because this is a really neat book. Now you, you wrote it from three different points of view and it's in two different time periods and that's what's cool. So tell us a little bit about how you picked Little Wolf and then her descendant, Nancy. I mean, I kind of was hoping all the way through it that tell me Nancy Swift Fox is her descendant. And then she met a Swift Fox and I'm like, yes, they're related. Fantastic. <laughs> I was, um, I, so it originally started was I was at a Musqueam feast and I sat down next to this elder who was um, Cheyenne and he just turned and he looked at me and he said, you know, there were women warriors. And I was in my undergraduate um, years at university at this point in time, um, studying to become a historian. And I had, I had never come across anything like that. So it, you know, I just, as a historian, I feel like you kind of pick up like certain things, just kind of pique your interest and you put it into like the archive of your mind. And so I went into the archives and I did start researching this and I did find that it, it would appear to be that at least 50% of these sort of Plains nations, you know, the Comanche, the, um, to a certain degree, the Apache, we have the Cheyenne, the CU. Yeah, there was a strong like women warrior presence. So I started just kind of like mulling that over. And then I read, um, I read George Armstrong Custer's memoirs. And I was like, whoa, what a narcissist. And I was like, really intrigued by that. So I started and he wrote all sorts of stuff. Like he fancied himself like an A-list celebrity back in, you know, the, the dawn of the industrial revolution there. If, so if I start Twitter, we know exactly what he would have been like. <laughs> Golden so I, curls, boy. Golden yeah. curls. <laughs> I mean, what an extraordinary person. Even like the word, like a lot of like your the American terms, like manifest destiny. I mean, like you you couldn't think of like anything like more grandiose to sort of like and capitalize like a movement like it's so amazing as a writer like you're just like whoa what is this like it just and as a Canadian and as an Indigenous person like it really really fascinated me so I started looking at this and I was really inspired by um the never-ending story the the the, the movie the like kids yeah. movie from the 80s we love that movie Okay, that movie's amazing, where he's, like, riding the dragon. You know how, like, at the beginning, you have him, like, and the grandpa, like, talking, and they kind of, like, go into the story. So that's where that, like, Nancy, to me, was sort of, like, them. And then, you know, they, we go into, like, the story of Little Wolf. And I had to have Custer in there because I had a hard time juxtapositioning, like, all the facts I wanted to articulate through the novel. Because, like, I, I, I am a mother, and I, you know... I, for me, it was like, how do I engage my my kids into the history and make it in like a fun sort of dynamic way? Because um, a lot of nonfiction is pretty dry. It is. This was actually an argument I was just having with with my mother-in-law, God bless her, an amazing woman of saying that you have all of this knowledge, maybe writing stories to make it accessible would mean that a thousand people read it instead of the two dozen assigned in the class. 
And yeah, exactly. That is, that is the power of novels. And the, the thing that I've loved is you remind people of something that Mr. Keeley taught me and I had forgotten until I got to the end of your book that Custer was clubbed to death by a chick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, historic how fact how like, awesome this, is that yeah the civil war hero like he was an amazing warrior custer and to go down like it's like a shakespearean tragedy when you look into custer's life like his whole family was there <laughs> like and so when i started it was it was just too fantastic i could not not write about it i i loved that and i loved the thread through it i have i've sometimes when people bop through time back and forth I have not always followed it perfectly. You made it very easy to follow. You were one of those things I really liked about it is when you have your jumping backward in time or jumping forward in time, you very quickly set the reader in where you are, what it smells like, what it looks like. You engage the senses. You're put in, okay, we're waking up. We are back in the teepee fondling the fur. <laughs> and and oh. I... I just thought that was actually very skillful. And I wanted to say that out loud because as you move through the seventies, all the way back to the, you know, hundred years earlier, basically it, it made it very easy. Oh, well, thank you so much. And then another reason why I chose like to have the 1970s juxtapositioned against, you know, this point in time, like 1876 is I wanted to show that these issues that were going on, you know, 100, 200 years ago are still resonating today. Like they're not fully resolved. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, I, there's things that I'd never thought about that Custer kind of helped discover and push the gold rush, you know, the Black Hills gold rush. And so that he was responsible for why did they want to mush them off their lands? Well, they wanted to you know, use it for natural resources and not pay rent and get people out of their way. But you also did something that I've appreciated that some of the memoirists have brought together of history is people not behaving well. <laughs> Those are the best stories though, right? We don't want to, we don't want to read too much like Laura Ingalls Wilder. Like it has its place, but. <laughs> There's the weaponized nostalgia is a big deal and it's happened in Hollywood. It happens on TV for years. I mean, when you have the whole Cowboys and Indians motif was one, first of all, John has a whole novel he's writing on how cowboys weren't white guys. What do you mean? <laughs> Oh, oh God, sure. please. And talking about weaponized nostalgia, Laura Ingers Wild was weaponized nostalgia herself. Yes, uh, she was. And so the fact that you brought it up that, yes, women were warriors. Yes, women were involved in making decisions and just as high as up as anyone else making decisions. And men have been behaving badly throughout history that I'm sorry, this is a trigger, but Women have been raping natives and slaves and anybody that they think couldn't fight back since the dawn of having somebody that wasn't as strong as you. Could I check that comment? Yeah. Did you mean to say women have been raping people? No, I, men have been raping women. And, okay. And you, men, <laughs> let's be fair. No, I, that I have that I'm okay with, but you actually said women have been raping people. I, Women, I, it was two, thank you. That was two sentences that were connected badly in my head. They got conjoined. And the thing is, and it's a question I actually have for your author here. Uh, history is written by the society that claims scholarship rights, even more so than the victor tells the story. 
the people that own the book repositories just quietly shuffle away the books that, well, just the fact that I'm saying books indicates that the people with the industrial base get to have their stories told. Not all the stories are lost, but uncovering them becomes very interesting. And uh, a case down here in California is that um, a historian went and looked at the local First Nation population and found stories of the Donner Party from the other side, which to distill them down to their quickest essence was those stupid fools were shooting at us. Stop giving them food. And uh, when you look at the historical record, it backs it up. Did you, and I apologize, I, I did not fully read the book. Did you delve into any knowledge that way? Did you find? I, yeah, I tried to, you know, I, I, well, I'm an indigenous woman. I'm 40 years old. So like I have my own thoughts on it. And, you know, I wanted to show I wanted to write, like you said, like you read so many of these sort of, you know, weaponized nostalgia, there's a romanticized version of an indigenous person. I wanted to make it, you know, like how I thought it would actually be like an honest portrayal of my truth and my ancestors truth. And what I found with that is that it was really hard to get it published. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I was going through like the submission process, like people were like, oh, this is amazing, but we can't publish it like this. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so then you're, you're greeted with a bunch of questions as an artist. You're like, well, what... Like, what, what do I want to get out of this? And ultimately, like, my message was purposeful. It was honoring my ancestors, and I wasn't going to change the story. So once, you know, you kind of get into that, it made the journey a little bit longer and more complicated trying to find someone whose values aligned with mine. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can hear that entirely. And that's that's a big piece of it of saying the when how do you find a story a home especially if it's not what people expect like I you went through Greenleaf Book Group Press right yeah I did and you know they were amazing and so like like form wise I was really inspired by um, modern literature so Hemingway and World War One poets like T.S. Eliot and Wilfred Owen and so, you know, they took some really, you know, some really sensitive subjects and they they just like breathe so much life into it, you know, in a really humanitarian sort of way. And so I wanted to do the same thing with this tragedy because they handled their tragedies in such, you know, it's in such an artistic manner that you that you can you, you, you know, you're more compassionate and, you know, understanding to what happened. So I wanted to have that sort of journey with this. You answered the question of the why, not just the what. And I think that is key to really good storytelling because you can, there are history teachers boring children across the planet with, and this battle happened at this war and this battle happened at this war, and then people moved here and then they did this thing. And if you don't have why, nobody's going to remember it. But you added why. You added you know, this is what gold meant. This is why they were relocating people. This is what had gone on before. These were individual persons' prejudices who'd come, and you packed it so full of why that, and it's the highest compliment I can give of, you made me go look things up, and that's so cool. Oh, 
that's amazing. Yeah, thank you. I worked with um, the editor, Elizabeth Brown, and she came out of Harvard. And the same thing, she's like, I didn't know half of this. Like, I actually had to go research this because I could not believe that that's what happened to the women from the Battle of Washita that, you know, the American military sort of imprisoned them and raped them repetitively. Like, it's you know, it's you're, yeah. it's it's so horrifying. You can't believe it actually happened. And to like write about it, it's like, no, I just that's not just my like weird subconscious. Like that actually happened. If one more person puts out one more meme on the topic of, you know, let's go back to a more polite time. I'm just going to bite them. More polite. <laughs> yeah. And as, to a certain extent, I don't know if it happens to you guys up in Canada so much, but in America, we have the idealized noble soldier. We've We've canonized them all such that anyone who's ever been a soldier, and how dare you speak ill of our troops, and how dare you, like, oh, honey, after Vietnam, I would have thought that illusion was gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, my mom was actually um, an Air Force pilot. So I come, I come from, you know, a, a military army family and they're complicated people. <laughs> they are. I, I come from a, a line of officers, my own self, and their view of, they call it the conscript troops is worst ever. You know, the minute we had the draft, they're like, oh God, no, let's never have a draft again. Because if you force somebody to do something they don't want somewhere, you either get David Drake or a monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's interesting, like we're talking about the wind talkers, like within the indigenous community in both Canada and the United States, like we have a heavy like history of um, armed forces, and yeah. that's a real that's like a real point of honor, like and so that's where we kind of I kind of tied Timmy into or Timothy into the Vietnam War, like these people were volunteering when everyone else is being conscripted. Yeah, yeah. I also liked. I didn't, I mean, there's a lot of it. You say the seventies wasn't technically that long ago, except for suddenly it is that long ago and I'm old, but <laughs> I was a child of the seventies and I did not know about some of what was going on with the Occupy Black Rock and Occupy um, Wounded Knee. And yeah, that was, that was so intense, like the American Indian movement. And so that kind of gets tied in with the black civil rights movement and it it was pure chaos, right? They're they're occupying Alcatraz. They occupied the whole Indian Affairs Office in Washington. Like it got pretty violent. And so what's what's fascinating is that the Pine Ridge Reservation, Wounded Knee, and the Battle of Little Bighorn, they're all in the same spot. Like that's amazing. Like yeah. that, that place is cursed. Well, it was. For me, it was you you glossed over it lightly, but the the number of state-sponsored murders of movements of all of these causes have made can make you sad. They can. For sure. But like the 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 sort of oppression that goes on against us is going on worldwide. So it's yeah. not just, you know, unfortunately, it's not just it's not just limited to to the indigenous Americans. No, it is not. No, I mean, the, the challenges with, we, we have a whole couple episodes we've done on colonialism and the, the problems thereby. So suffice it to say that we all hope Indiana Jones breaks into the British Museum to repatriate things that he can take back to their countries where they belong, but probably yeah, not. Yeah, that's, 
that that's always that's quite a sensitive subject, isn't it? <laughs> I've been working on a book about um, Geronimo. And it's like, well, where is Magnus Colorado's head? <laughs> Why did they steal it? And please just give it back. I also thought it was interesting. And, and this one is a deeper one. The theme is a, a feeling of identity. What is a loss of identity? What is, what is persisted with identity? And what does it mean to feel like your identity is taken away from you while still feeling like, hey, you had one? I mean... I'm a I'm a white girl mutt. My father was found on a park bench. Do I have an identity? Eh, well, you know, Californian. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty amazing when you start getting it. Like, like race is an invented concept that sort of started, you know, towards the the end of the 19th century. So, you know, these people wouldn't have had that sort of um, that sort of like perceptional concept of themselves so without that when you eliminate that like like my ancestors like they knew and they fought for like we're all one universal energy like if you harm another like you harm yourself but then you're met with manifest destiny that was so violent that they had to choose like what do we do do we just surrender do we die do we do we try to fight for you know this land that we've been on for thousands of years like what what's what choice do we have left and to that like to that sort of conundrum as a historian when you're reading that I was like wow like you you really need to humanize that because when you start just going through it as a historian and and how it's taught it like it's exactly like you said it's like and then there was this battle and then there was this battle it's like well what does that mean yeah. what's the impact and what's what's the continuous like traumatic imprinting of that impact as I mentioned like all these issues that I that I, I met and I talked about in this in this novel like they're still going on today. As a science fiction geek, I did not know that the Klingon today is a good day to die arose from Native American beginnings. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the CU. And so that was, you know, that was like. Oh, my God. How did you not know that? I did not know that, John. <laughs> I mean, Thank I you, never, Angie. I never thought so. about it until you pointed it out. <laughs> that <laughs> I mean, was the question. Did you know that the Klingons borrowed it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe one of them had like an interracial marriage at some point, and you know, those those CU values sort of like trickled in. I, I loved the. There was a quote that I went because when I went and started digging in, it came up in your novel, so that threw me right back into research. You kind of like wait. That's Klingon, isn't it? And then I, I <laughs> ran into it and I, I loved something. If I can read it, it says, we should be ready to die on any given day. We should always be prepared to die and have no regrets. That's why it's important to begin each day fresh and not let past problems or present distractions cloud how the world wants us to live. Yeah, it's that it's that presence, right? The awareness. And and so like that was like the spirituality was so ingrained into my ancestors that, you know, Christianity and the way that that was structured at that point in time didn't resonate with them. And so you have this real it's like two opposing forces meeting. And so you you have this mass relocation and then the breakdown of indigenous societal structures through the residential schools or in, in the United States, you call them boarding schools. And so this is just sort of like the beginning of that, right? Where like we're, we're ripping them off their land so we can take the natural resources and then we're going to try, we're going to try to, we can't kill them. So we're just going to try to culturally destroy them. 
we can't publicly kill them. Although, you know, this also well, they, they 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 tried to publicly kill them, but they just they just couldn't kill us all. <laughs> just... Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the thing is, the history stretches back to the Spanish. In California, of course, if you ever survive a California fourth grade, you build a mission. And I went to a mission school. I went to University of Santa Clara. And without getting too deep into it, if you visit the graveyard there, you realize that as a mission school, it had a lot of the same problems as a basic residence school. Yeah. And in the area I'm in, uh, Silicon Valley, they call it now Valley of Heart's Delight, there is a very deep lost and i prefer the term first nations i think the canadians have it right history of the people who lived here before uh the russians got to the north and the the spanish got to the south um and the funny thing was this this valley we live in was the most heavily populated valley before the diseases swept in and after that society collapsed and there was two oh, for sure, like the, the death rate of, you know, like the modern cold and flu, because we we didn't have we weren't exposed to those things. Like it's 90 percent like it, it reached where I'm from in the Northwest Territories quite quite a bit later because um, we weren't met with colonization until quite a bit later. So like there are still people alive that from the 1920s and 30s that remember like whole villages were wiped out. And. Some of it was how they approached it, too. I mean, the Canadians said their way, they're Canadian and North American. We did the, oh, yes, we have schools and missions. The mission is more the Spanish way. I thought it was interesting the way the Portuguese did it in Brazil of in the Catholic Spanish way was we create missions and schools and we force all the children to learn how to be Spanish. And in in Brazil, they had an interesting thing that said it was absolutely forbidden for to teach natives anything about how to read or write Portuguese or, you know, the Latin languages. So one way or another, it was how do I erase a culture in their own way? So for sure. So like, so for, so for me, like the 1970s, like Nancy Swift Fox, like to get there, she would have, her people would have gone through that. So to me, it's like, well, like my, my, you know, my Air Force pilot mother also went through the residential school system. So like I, I firsthand have heard the horrors that went on there, but yet here I am, you know, I'm still an indigenous woman. I still have these values. Like they weren't able to take them from us. So that's where we kind of go back full circle to like the cultural identity and what does that mean and how, and you know, this, this isn't my story. Like this is everyone's story. Like if you're, you know, this is this is all our history. It's not just limited to us. So again, you know, how do you humanize this and how do you make it interesting? Like as a mother, like I look at my kids who like Pokemon and and, and different, like how, how do you engage them? You also brought up something that at least here in America, we, we are deeply in love with, you know, throwing people in jail one way or the other. Because you had a character who was married to somebody that was in jail, you had an interesting point of how many women in America are trying to raise children and deal with the whole incarcerated spouse when we've incarcerated 9% of our population. And I mean, they had sex before they went in many of them. So as, as we figure out how we see that, you know, the women needing help and how they've changed that narrative, that's an important thing that you, you don't underline it and you don't throw it in people's faces, but it's real. How do you make ends meet? And how have women who have been single mothers throughout history, 
have worked and found a way to make ends meet. And there's just for the feminism of it, I, I kind of felt like in my own white girl way, I had a little connection to Nancy Swift Faust and Little Wolf. Also, I, mean, I would amazing. happily... Unfortunately, like in like indigenous people, like we're we're so we're we're, we're overrepresented in like every negative category, and incarceration is one of them. Yep. So, so again, that was just sort of like observing my community. I was like, oh, like that's I'm a single mother as well. So it's like, well, you know, you find a way. Well, I, I'm on the chick side. I was aware when it went out and said, hey, have we talked about how violence against Native American women have gone largely unreported? And this is just men behaving badly on and off reservations, because who do you tell? Exactly. And so it's, you know, and, and you can't really like, you can't really change something unless you kind of bring light to it. That's, and so that's, that's, that's like something important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, I, I, you know, I, I visit a shaman and that's sort of like, that's like what soul retrieval is, right? You can't really like bring your whole soul back until you acknowledge the shadows of your own soul. So it's, you know, it's acknowledging the shadows of the past, but it's hopefully, you know, we can look at this and we can go, wow, maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's why I think that all of these stories, and it's not the center of your story, it's just a piece of it, but to just drop it casually that, yeah, this happens so that it becomes part of the narrative. It becomes, you know, yet another bit of the story. And that's why I, out there, this is for people listening, your stories matter. The things you look about that matters, the story of your families matter, that if everybody dug into their own history of their own family, somewhere in there, you got a black sheep. I'm sorry, you do. <laughs> and, Except for maybe that they, Laura Ingalls Wilder. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that we don't know anything about Mary Ingalls's cousins or any of <laughs> I mean, those books are amazing. I remember reading them when I was little, and you know what always stuck with me was the maple syrup. And yeah. it's I it's been my lifelong dream to go find these magical maple syrup trees. Um, I haven't gotten there yet, but it's on my bucket list. Okay, it's Ontario, and it's right near Letterkenny. I'm sorry, not Letterkenny. Um, um, what's the real name of Letterkenny? I forget. Uh, you they, asked the right person, though. She yeah. would know. Listowel, Ontario has so many maple trees and so many Mennonite farms that are selling the the syrup by the side of the road that you can get any color you want. I'm just telling you, go go visit the capital, go south from Toronto, visit Guelph and head out towards Listowel and you will find that beautiful maple syrup. Yeah, I lived there, I never, I lived there I never, for years. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's it's been a dream of mine. Like I'm in Canada, but I never go to eastern Canada. It seems so far away. Well, it, it's not even very close on the map. Canada's really big. Canada's really large. There's a song <laughs> called that. There is. Canada's really big. It's uh, Arrogant Worms, I think. Arrogant Worms. All right. This is because you have been a teacher and a reader and you have degrees in English literature and creative writing. You've clearly written at least a thousand papers or more and essays and stories. Is this your first novel? This is, I yeah, we, we, we discussed this earlier. This is my first novel that was, I deemed publishable. So I've, I just, I've been writing for years. It's something I started doing when my um, daughters were infants, because you have a lot of time on your hands. It, it, it's interesting though, as a mother, like you have a lot of time with babies, but you also don't have any time. 
So you have so much time to think and like, you know, I always joked around like some people knit and I ended up writing. And so I started off with nonfiction writing. And then, you know, a decade ago, I, I just like got into fiction writing and I just really enjoyed it. And so I wrote two novels before this that were okay. okay. Like, I think like anyone who writes like a first novel, I think like for, I, I don't know if anyone's ever written a first novel that was like, you're like, whoa, that was spectacular. Like, you know, you go back and you kind of look through it and you're like, oh yeah, there's some mistakes in there. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> things that made perfect sense to us when we first wrote it, you know, five years ago, you can go back and like, oh, 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 gee. And so then I, I got going with this and I, um, I was taking, I was interested in making a documentary originally about this. So I was talking to a screenplay writer, Leslie Milner. He he wrote for The Simpsons at one point, but I just like with, told him what story I was working on. And he was just like, whoa, that's good. And so I started, you know, I was kind of halfway through it at that point. When I finished it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. And so I got the um, another historian to look through it, Robert Mallet, Dr. Robert Mallet. And uh, he's like, no, that's pretty amazing. And so, you know, to kind of, you know, like my my journey as a writer is to just keep on writing. <laughs> don't just don't just go off on like your first book and think like this is it. Like just keep going. Like finish that book and start another book. That is a surprisingly consistent advice that we've started hearing from people. <laughs> just just keep writing. We promise it gets better. Yeah, it gets it gets better and better. And for me too, like I write out everything by hand. So I first do because uh, I I am trained as a historian, and I have written like I like to write historical fiction. I write it out almost like I'm doing like a master's thesis. Like I do archival research, and I you know I spend I take as much time as I feel I need on that to gather all my facts, and then I kind of make like a map of. Um, which facts I want to include and, you know, the, the what and the why essentially, and like how that pertains to my characters. And then like, I just start dreaming about the story around that. The, the what and the, I mean, why is, is magic. And I hope more people that are writing historical fiction delve into that because you can keep to names, dates, places, et cetera. You can keep to all that is real and make it living. And I think it helps kids. And the more kids reconnect with the past, the more they are more compassionate and kind going into the future, I think. Oh, definitely. Like I, like I would be a totally different person without my historical knowledge. Like it gives you a sort of, um, uh, you know, a compassion worldliness when you hear things, you know, even like we we're talking about like, well, yeah, this is terrible what's happened to us, but this has kind of gone on everywhere. <laughs> like you can look at it from, you know, uh, a point of awareness without getting caught up in the drama of hate. What are you working on now then? Is there a... Yeah, I'm working on Geronimo and he fought with the medicine woman Lozen and Lozen was sort of eradicated from history. And here's this beautiful woman who had these amazing capabilities that uh, really needs to um, be told. Awesome. Well, at the time of this recording, and I hardly ever do this, we are recording this on January 16th. This is your book launch day. So congratulations. Your baby is born across the world. <laughs> oh, it was a struggle. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It was great. <laughs> it came out easily. <laughs> I want, I want, you have to send me a picture. Who did your beautiful cover art? 
Oh yeah, Neil, the graphic artist Neil. And so um we I I was telling you earlier that you know I he they were like, oh Neil's gonna do your cover. And they were like, Do you have any suggestions for Neil? I was like, Oh, do I ever? I wanted something that looked like the American punk book. So congratulations and well done you. Oh, thank you so much. We will put links to the fascinating things we discussed during this episode on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Thank you so much for visiting with us today, Angie. This was magnificent. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Coffee is my favorite drink, so you had me at the title. Well, perfect. And all I can see is violence is available out now. We will have links to all of the places you can buy it. And it is, I really do recommend it. If you know nothing about Native American history, dick your dink your toes in and learn about how a chick clubbed uh, custard to the ground and you will cheer. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web magic is cast by Deirdre Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music is performed by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael at manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, Arm Street, an homage to wherever you enjoy your tasty beverages. And hey, thanks for listening.